I want to go to the book of Acts this morning. And, and thank you to Brad for th those cards are back there for you to take with you. Take, you know, we got like another stack of them between now and Easter to give out. So uh, take a liberal number and, and just invite people. Share uh, that this is, a, this is the best time of the year. This is one of my favorite times of the year is Easter. So um, let, let's make it count for the Lord. Amen. Last week, I did a little bit of a narrative-type preaching, which is not, that's not my most comfortable uh, model of preaching. So uh, since I, I went for it one time, I'm going to go for it again. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but we're going to look at, I asked someone, uh, I usually bounce a question off of a particular young person, and uh, this morning I did the same thing. I asked her, I said, what's the difference because she even, she baited me for the question. She said, you don't have a question for me today? I said, yeah, i got a question for you. What's the difference between the Spirit-empowered church and the Spirit-led church? And she said, uh, well, that's kind of a hard one. <laughs> I said, you think about it. Think about it. Just let it sit in your mind. Spirit-empowered church and a Spirit-led church. And here's the, the, the really kind of crude analogy. I said, just, you know, when, why do you eat food? You eat food to get energy, okay? Now, that, that energy is there. But what matters is what do you do with it? The Spirit-empowered church is a given. But it's different when the Spirit-empowered church begins to function as a Spirit-led church. And this is what I think we're going to explore a little bit. Uh, I'm going to start with the most unlikely candidate as a disciple of Jesus, and that's this, this character named Saul of Tarsus. Now, something really happened to him that was really mysterious. In fact, it was so radical, and he was so radical, that at the time of his conversion, more people disbelieved it than believed it. When he went to Jerusalem to meet with the disciples, very few of the disciples would meet with him. They thought it was a trick. They didn't believe that this rascal had become a Christian. Have you met people like that? They became a Christian. That's my brother. Your brother became a Christian. Yes, your brother. John Lynn. I said, I have one brother, and that's his name. Yes, he became a Christian. That's like Saul of Tarsus. Saul, I'm not going to. I just think there's something iffy about this. Because in one moment in chapter 7... Saul of Tarsus is involved in the martyrdom of Stephen. He's part of that group that's arguing with Stephen, and uh, they're getting really frustrated with Stephen, and, and they continue just harassing him and pushing him. And, and Saul is part of that group that gets to the point, he hears the same thing that the rest of the people heard when Stephen finally said, And I see the heavens open. And the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. If you read that in chapter 7, they come unhinged. They put their hands to their ears. They grab him, drag him out of the city. Because if they're going to stone someone, they want to do it by the law of Moses. You have to do that outside the city. They dragged him outside the city. They took their coats off and put them at the feet of Saul of Tarsus. And they killed that man. They stoned him. They threw rocks at him until 
they beat him to death. So here's Saul of Tarsus involved in that. And I don't know the time lapse between chapter 7 and chapter 9. Right there, chapter 8, the, the persecution after Stephen's death just kind of blew up. And Saul is right in the middle of it. But we don't know how much time was between what was recorded in chapter 7, Stephen's death, and what we read in chapter 9, Saul's incredible conversion. Chapter 9 just tracks what saw happened in his life. God did something so radical, so out of the normal. Think about this. Stephen had a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the, of the Father in the heavens. That was a vision. What Saul of Tarsus saw was not a vision. It was the actual appearance of Jesus. Think about how radical that was. He ascended up to, to the heavens, and he is told, the angels tell he's going to come back in like manner, but he took his position at the right hand of God, right hand of the Father. But for this occasion, in chapter 9, he descends close enough in this bright light for Saul of Tarsus to see it. It slams him to the ground, blinds his eyes, and a voice speaks out of that bright light asking the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And all that Saul can say, he doesn't answer the question. All he can say is, who are you, Lord? And I want you to track this with me if you're there in chapter 9, because this is, this is not a long, it doesn't seem like this is a long exchange. This is like real brief. And he said this to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I don't think Saul was waiting for that. But like, bang, bang, right behind it, I don't know, I love this story so much, I could preach on this <laughs> back to back, and I never get tired. It's just fascinating to me. Because he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Get up. That's the next thing. <laughs> get up. Go into the city. And when you get there, they'll tell you what you got to do. And boom, he was gone. Don't you just love that? Has, has God ever <laughs> done just enough in your life to like, that's that's it? That's all? That's all you're going to let me in on? Is that there's not anything more? And it's like, no, get up and go into the city, and somebody will tell you when you get there what you got to do. That's it. No more hints, no more suggestions. And so we find Saul at this house, and I love this because he is the man. He is the man. You know what I'm saying when I'm saying the man? He is the authority. He's got papers in hand. He's deputized to arrest all the people that's just like Stephen, those radical followers of Jesus. He's going to Damascus with news that there's some believers up there, and we're going to arrest all of them, bring them back down to Jerusalem, and we're going to deal with them accordingly. He is on his way. He's got an entourage of people. These bounty hunters are with him. And the next... Boy, do their mission change. They go from going to arrest a bunch of people to leading their leader by the hand because he can't see. And they're leading him and drop him off at a house, and there he is at this man's house. 
For three days, the Bible says he does not eat or drink anything. And for three days, he is blind. And as you go through this chapter 9, you'll see this unfold. And so there he is, and there's a man named Ananias also in Damascus, and he's one of those that Saul is coming to arrest. And the Lord speaks to Ananias in a vision and says, Ananias, he says, yes, Lord. He says, okay, I want you to go down to Judas's house on Straight Street and ask for a guy from Tarsus named Saul. And so the pushback is there with Ananias. Lord, uh, the man that you just told me, we know what he's coming here to do. There's not many good reports about him, and he's kind of giving this, you know, we're concerned about this guy's reputation. He's not one to deal with. We're all kind of like avoiding him, and now you're sending me to him. But the Lord also told Ananias this, I want you to go to him and do two things. I want you to lay hands on him that he might receive his sight. And so here goes Ananias, and he tells Ananias, and besides, the table is set for you with him because that man, and I love this part when the Lord says, go because he's praying. (laughs) Saul of Tarsus is praying. Good move, right? If I was him, I'd be praying too. And he says he's praying, but he's also seen you in a vision. I've already prepped him for your arrival. He sees a man named Ananias coming and laying hands on him that he might receive his sight. And I love it when Ananias gets there. He walks into the house and he says something like this. Brother Saul. You know, that, I don't know if that was a reach for him, but... Not, no, you notorious person, you. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me. Now, you ought to underline this or highlight this because this is rich. He has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He has sent me that... First of all, the condition of your eyes will be removed. Your blindness will be removed, but that you will also be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Saul had the best training in the world. He was trained under Gamaliel, and he had the best training. He had a keen intellect, but God knew this boy just couldn't go by his intellect. He needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he lays hands on him. Scales fall from his eyes. He gets up. He takes water baptism. He eats something, and he regains his strength. And the next chapter begins. Think about this. He has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems that God is not only restoring his physical eyesight, but he's actually saying to him, and I'm going to give you an elevated sight of discernment, of direction, by filling you with the Holy Spirit. Your intellect is not enough to qualify you for what I'm calling you. You need the endowment of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, we're going to jump to 13, chapter 13, so if you just kind of make that excursion, I can go to a number of places, but uh, I'm trying to keep this narrative within your lunch plans. How's that? 
Now, Antioch, and, and uh, in just a moment, I'm going to show you a map. But Antioch is exploding. The church is exploding. Barnabas is there. And Barnabas knows all about Saul of Tarsus. He knows about his conversion. He knows that he's back at home in his hometown, in Tarsus. And he, is, he decides to go get him. Saul of Tarsus, he's, he's there. We know he's there because he left Jerusalem to hide from people who were trying to kill him. Now he's the hunted instead of the hunter. And so for some reason, he goes, we don't know how long he was in his hometown, but Barnabas goes and gets him and says, you know what? We need you to help us teaching. We, we need more discipleship. And he became part of this, this pastoral theme. And when you see chapter 13, you see Five men who are in leadership positions. It's kind of like a pastoral team. Lucius, Nigel, Manaean, Barnabas, and Saul. Five of these men who make up the, probably the pastoral team here. And it says they're worshiping. Look at verse 2 if you're there at, at Acts 13. They're worshiping and they're fasting. And while they're worshiping and fasting, watch this. The Holy Spirit said... Separate for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on these two men and sent them off. But I want you to go back to that part. The Holy Spirit said, what do you think that was? How does the Holy Spirit speak? And he didn't say that they felt led, that Barnabas is all Here's where I think we really need to hit the pause button and say, do we make our plans out of committee or do we make our plans out of the unction of the Spirit? These five guys could have on their own decided, you know what, we're, we're needing to venture out west of here to the regions west of Antioch. And when you see that map, have you put the map up yet? I want you to see how close Tarsus is with Syria, Antioch. And, and you see how far Jerusalem is. There's Damascus. This is where all of this happened with Saul. He goes back. He finds himself back home in Tarsus. And it's not a big thing for Barnabas to leave Antioch and go over and get Paul. You see, it's not very far in distance. So when he comes back, the Holy Spirit in this team speaks. Now, how did that work? Was there a word of prophecy? Was there someone maybe give a message in tongues and interpreted? Or how did they know that this was the Holy Spirit speaking? I believe if we could ask them, they could tell us how they knew that was the voice of the Holy Spirit. But my question is, where are we hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit? Here is where I think the key is. What were they doing? They were not on their iPhones. They were worshiping and fasting, meaning they were seeking God. God always shows up when we're seeking him. And these five men must have been compelled that we need the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so they separated themselves. And in the midst of that, somehow the Spirit of God spoke to them 
through them, but to the point that they knew the Holy Spirit was saying, I'm tabbing Barnabas and Saul out of the five, separate them unto me. And the two of them, in verse 4, was sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit? I'm telling you, you cannot read very much in the book of Acts without realizing that there's the prominence of the Holy Spirit. There was a plan, there was a strategy, but all of that needed the voice of the Holy Spirit to make it work. And we don't see any hesitation here. We don't see like, well, we're going to have to get, you know, think about this. The power of the Holy Spirit was there, but now they had the direction of the Holy Spirit. And listen to this in verse 9. The interesting thing is they were sent to Cyprus and they're doing ministry and, and Paul now is filled with the Holy Spirit. Barnabas is with him. They're preaching. They're going right into the synagogues. They don't waste a moment. They start preaching. They're on a mission. Why? Because the Holy Spirit told them what to do. I want to tell you, when Azusa Street took place in the early 1900s, there was people that encountered God in those meetings in Los Angeles, California, that had no knowledge of Mandarin Chinese, had no support base, no one they knew in China. They went by faith, by train, to a harbor in New York and stood in line and waited for God to provide them passageway to go to China because they heard God call them to China. And they went. You couldn't get a missions board to do that today because they weren't under a missions board. But it was the Holy Spirit. It was this Holy Spirit was directing things and sending people out. And when they got there, God helped them to learn the language and have contacts, and there they were in China with no support base whatsoever. And this is kind of like they're not exactly like this. They had a church base. But the first instance a problem pops up in verse 9 is with a sorcerer who tries to interfere with the proconsul getting saved. The proconsul's curious and he wants to hear uh, Paul share the gospel a little bit more. And here's this sorcerer that he's like, no, we're not going to let our governor get brought into this thing. And so he tries to interfere with him. Listen, Paul says, Paul called, Saul now called by Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, this is the Spirit. Look straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. He probably is hurting his feelings here. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time. And Paul knows how that is, right? Not even able to see the light of the sun, immediately a mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. It wasn't what happened to Elimaeus that really convinced him. It was the preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think he was unaware that something was going on that was not original with Paul and Barnabas. Something was going on in there that was coming out of the work of the Holy Spirit. And when you go over to Acts 15, it's not long after that, the church is beset by bad teaching. Not that we have bad teaching today, right? There's, there's no bad teaching. There's no, like, bad doctrine. But here, I mean, the church is not even a couple of decades old, and, and they've already got people trying to mess things up. You know, that makes me feel good about us. 
Because we're, they were no different than us. They had to work through their issues, right? And they needed the Holy Spirit to work through their issues. And so this bad teaching made its way. You know, when, when Antioch was exploding with growth, it's kind of like whenever God starts doing something, it, it attracts the crazies. Brownville attract the crazies. They showed up and then they were deputized because they went to Brownsville so they could come and teach and preach and everything and have the strangest teaching that you could ever hear of. But they'd been to Brownsville and they had the deputizing of the Holy Spirit upon them and that's not how it worked. And the Holy Spirit was giving direction in Acts 15 by Barnabas and Saul again. Paul was sent down to Jerusalem and they had this big meeting, this leadership meeting in, in Jerusalem about this teaching that's coming up. And the leadership in Jerusalem agrees with Paul and Barnabas that that teaching cannot be allowed in Antioch or anywhere in the body of Christ. So I want you to see verse 25 because this is Acts 15. And I'm not too far from being finished, so I feel good about this. They write a letter, and, it's, and also in writing the letter, they sent two men from their headquarters in Jerusalem. It's kind of let you know how detailed they handled things. A man named Judas and Silas, and they said, we're going to send this letter, but we're also going to send two of our men to kind of like say, this is a certified letter, this is actually a letter from the leadership in Jerusalem. And they start reading that letter, and, and in that letter you find these lines in verse 25. So we all agree to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. What, what was that that we just read? How did it seem good to the Holy Spirit? How did they... Was that just a phrase that they put in there, or was there an actual effect the holy spirit was effecting the leadership it's not just that the holy spirit was empowering but he was giving direction he was speaking to them in decision making and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements i wonder how much better it would be if we learned to lean on the direction of the holy spirit for matters in dispute when there's disagreements like they did. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. He's not, a, he's not an external influence. He's an internal influence. And the whole issue about this teaching, they had to resolve it because the very next chapter, they're back in missions. And when they're in missions in Acts 16, this is my last part of this narrative, is that they're going across what is now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and later on in chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they're now partners in this mission's work, and Luke joins them later on. But they're going across from like east to west, and when they get over near Troas in that area, he tries to go to Bithynia. It says there, he said, we, but the Spirit of God wouldn't let us. The Spirit of God stopped us. Twice, the Spirit, they, they tried to go in one direction, the Spirit of God stopped them. No. They tried to go in another direction. The Spirit of God said, no. So they just kind of 
you know, went on toward the west, seeing what's going to happen. They get over to Troas, and lo and behold, Paul has this vision of a man in Macedonia, and you know what the Macedonian man in the vision said to him, right? What did he say? Come over here and help us. Come over here. See, this is a spirit-led group here. And God is impressing. And I just, it's amazing that Paul had ideas that the Holy Spirit did not endorse. He had plans and strategy that he didn't sign off on. Yeah, Bithynian needs a gospel. That's not where I'm sending you. I need you to get collected here because I'm heading you in a different direction. And here's what was, here was what was on the line here. There was a jailer in Philippi that the Lord wanted to save. There was a jailer there that the Lord wanted to save. And he had to kind of direct Paul and Silas in that direction. There's also a demonized girl there that needed to be delivered. So how did all this fit together? You think about this. The Holy Spirit was leading them, and the Holy Spirit put them in direct trouble. <laughs> as soon as they delivered, cast out that demon out of that young girl, the wheels came off. They were arrested. They were beaten with rods. They were put in prison. They had chains on their ankles and hands. They were supposed to be kept in there because these were dangerous people. They brought this dangerous doctrine into our city. And they were in the night singing and praising God, and all of a sudden an earthquake hits that jail, and the jailer thinks that everybody has escaped, and he pulls out his sword to commit suicide. And Paul yells at him, don't do that. We're all right here. Everybody is right here. And that jailer came running, to them, fell down on his knees and says, tell me what I need to do to be saved. Now, you see, if, if that was us, as soon as we got arrested and, and beaten with rods, we would have said, we missed the turn. This cannot be the leading of the Holy Spirit. Right? Any discomfort... I like what Michael was saying at, at near the end of the worship time about the safe pursuit of the Lord and needed to be a little bit more adventurous. And, and the word that came to my mind as he was sharing that is familiarity. We love familiarity. We, we don't want God leading us to do anything that's outside of our comfort. And I know I didn't get any amens there, but I know they're here. Under your breath, he says, yeah, that's me. God don't give me anything that's like really scary to do. I want the praise team to come back up, and I'm going to finish with this. One decision, one decision Paul made, and not only was that jailer saved, but a church was birthed that Paul would later say that congregation would do anything in the world for me. And you know how that congregation was birthed? It was birthed by him and his buddy getting beaten with rods. That's how it was birthed. 
And why were they there? They were being led by the Holy Spirit. So well, I don't want to volunteer for that. But let me tell you what you can volunteer. Wednesday night I talked about a man by the name of Edward Kimball. And those who are here Wednesday night know who Edward Kimball is. Probably if you weren't here Wednesday night, probably nobody in this room can, could tell you who Edward Kimball is or was. He taught a Sunday school class. That's, he was a Sunday school teacher. And there was a 17-year-old boy in his class that he really felt like didn't know the Lord. And this kid was working for his uncle down at the shoe store downtown. And Edward Kimball got impressed that he needed to go witness to that young guy. And so he walked in and in the back stock room of that shoe store, in a brief conversation, he led that young man named Dwight to the Lord. He wouldn't be known by Dwight Lyman. He would be known more by his initials, D.L. Moody. 17 years of age, a Sunday school teacher, maybe taking one of those Easter cards or something, just, just doing something, going and talking to him, and he was ready. You think about single decisions in your life. When you look back, and, and boy, did I ever think of something during the worship time that I had nothing to do with, but it was fundamental to me coming to know Jesus at an early age. When my dad moved from Macon, Georgia to Sylacauga and helped with a new paper mill in Childersburg, I was born shortly after that in Sylacauga. The last three of us were born in Sylacauga. But my mother and dad lived next door to a woman who went after my mom. A spirit-filled woman reaching out to this mom with all these kids led her into a deeper experience with the Lord. I think she had, had been hungering to follow Jesus and made decisions along the way, just didn't know what to do. She, I think she said she got baptized seven times or something like that. <laughs> She'd get baptized and then later on she's like, well, this, something's still missing. And she's like, maybe I need to get baptized again. And she said most of the time she went down a wet center and came up a dry center. But I thought that woman, that single person, let me ask you something. When time is no more, don't you want to have those kind of moments that you find out in heaven? You know that, you know that neighbor you talked to? Well, they didn't really do much with what you shared, but they was talking to someone else and they took it. They responded to the gospel. You know that probably happens more than what we know. Here's what I want to say, if you'll stand with me. How many want to be led by the Spirit? Not just empowered. You want to be led by the Spirit. You want the Spirit to be able to tell you, stop and talk to that person. Help that person. Reach out to that person. And sometimes, you know, I really have come to a point in my life not just recently, but I just kind of like, I don't think there's any coincidences with people who want to follow the leading of God. 
that no matter who you encounter, there could be something very divine, something very prophetic, that God puts you across the path of someone that's just not happens chances. There's something divine. Lord, I pray this morning. We have within our grasp a Philippi. We have a place that you want us to be. You have a person you want us to engage. And it's not in the direction we want to go, in the direction we're more comfortable going. It might be in a, in a part of the city that we're not comfortable, but you put us there because there's a strategic person, just like Saul of Tarsus was a strategic person. And it wasn't an accident what happened to him. Lord, help us. Help us this morning as your very own to not want it our way, but want it your way. That's really when we know we're willing to follow you is when we surrender our ideas and our strategies in preference for your strategy. And would you right where you're at just surrender yourself to him? Right where you're at, just that's what I want, Lord. That's what I want, Lord. I surrender my life to you, Jesus, with no strings attached, no preconditions, no limitations.